Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. We're pleased to be a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. I'm Mary Shirley, and today we host Olivia Seat, Head of the In-House Practice Group for Asia-Pacific at Major Lindsay in Africa, a legal and compliance executive search firm. Welcome, Olivia. Hi, Mary. Olivia, please walk us through uh, your background. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I'm originally from Australia, and I've been in legal and compliance recruiting for 13 years across the APAC region. I started working at my current company, Major Lindsay in Africa, about 12 years ago, and I head up their in-house practice group for the region. I started working in our Hong Kong office, and then after eight years, moved to Australia to help start our Sydney office, and then really recently relocated to Singapore at the end of last year to continue building out the function um, in Asia. Wonderful. Thanks very much. And you and I have um, led uh, kind of similar paths in terms of geographies and, of course, met um, when I was a newbie in Hong Kong and you were um, a, a real old hand at it and showed me the ropes. Yep. Um, Olivia, what are uh, the common characteristics or traits you've noticed about um, candidates who who are in high demand with employers? So essentially I'm asking, what makes a unicorn? Um, I think increasingly in Asia, well, and I guess this is a trend that kind of comes and goes, you know, is multiple language skills, which you've probably heard a number of times. Um, multiple, you know, even meaning two is, uh, is great to have. You know, obviously, if there are people that can speak three languages, it's really um, helpful. And I think it really sets them apart from other candidates. Um, also, but that, you know, as I said, sorry, that does fluctuate. You know, sometimes um, we have clients that say this is, you know, going to be essential for our business and then other clients that say, well, it used to be, but now we're really looking for someone that can help drive our compliance function and if they don't have all the legal, uh, sorry, all the language skills, then that's fine. You know, we will hire, um, you know, juniors or other people to help take on the load. But really with reduced headcount all across the board, our clients really are looking for that unicorn uh, that can really, you know, tick all the boxes. Um, Apart from that, I would say certainly someone that has attention to detail but also is aware of the big picture. And also in Asia, given the number of jurisdictions, someone that has, you know, a really good understanding of compliance laws and and knows how to assess risk um, in countries that they are familiar with and also, you know, ever-expanding new countries, emerging markets. So not everybody has experience in every country, but someone that has that really good core foundation that's able to, um, you know, really assess the risk, ask the right questions, really probe um, when needed, even if they've had no experience in that market is also key. Great. That makes a lot of sense. And I I certainly have been um, on the receiving end of the requirement for Chinese language skills and uh, come up empty. So um, a a little tough for some of us when that's the trend, but but good to hear that um, it's not always uh, the the key priority. 
What um, skill sets yeah. um, are most sought after in the compliance market at the moment? Um, I think certainly, you know, communication is, you know, absolutely um, something that, you know, all candidates, whether they're, you know, going for legal jobs, compliance jobs that they need to have. And I think particularly in compliance, you know, people need to be effectively salespeople. You know, the the programs that are, and the training sessions, everything that needs to be implemented needs to have buy-in from the business. So, um, having someone that can work across different levels um, from, you know, the senior management, um, you know, right down to, um, you know, the everyday office worker or even in factories um, where relevant. Also someone that can work across different cultures, especially if your remit is more than one country, you know, building relationships, you know, both internally and externally, you know, with, with regulators, government officials, you know, is also key um, as well. And I think, um from a technical um, perspective, certainly experience working across multiple jurisdictions. Um, even, you know, it's very rare to find someone that looks for someone, sorry, that is only focused on one country, unless it's a country, for example, like, you know, China, where, you know, it's one country, but it's obviously, you know, very big <laughs> with lots of different mm-hmm. challenges. Um, but certainly, for example, based in Singapore, um, you'd be, it'd be hard to find someone that's just focused on Singapore unless they're really at the junior level and hasn't, you know, expanded into the rest of Southeast Asia, you know, ASEAN region. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing the screening for uh, the hiring managers, um, how are you assessing who's good on the communication skills? Is it as simple as someone who sounds and presents well when they're um, conversing with you? Do you ask for written samples um, of, of items that they've authored? How do you know and, and screen and vet for those skills? Yeah, sure. I mean, like, I think it's a mixture of a few things. Certainly, you know, having conversations with them um, face-to-face where possible, you know, obviously if we're in the same um, in the same city at that time. Um, otherwise, certainly phone screening. And I like to actually talk to them about, obviously, work-related, compliance-related um, experience, but also about day-to-day things as well. I like to try and get an understanding of how they perceive the world. Are they they open-minded, you know, will, you know, are, or are they someone that, you know, likes to stick to the rules, um, not just obviously work day say, but also, you know, outside. I'm not looking obviously for a big party goer, but I am looking for mm-hmm. someone that, you know, is able to have their own opinion and can pr- express that um, clearly and well, um, and someone that is open to other people's thoughts as well, so um, an opinion. So I think that's also really important. Also, as part of our recruitment process, we also ask, ask them to fill in a questionnaire, um, which is all about themselves, um, but we'll also have some scenario questions related to the role um, where they can write in their own language um, how they have been able to um, overcome a situation or um, what their problem-solving so- process was to a particular matter. Um, you know, for us, that's really insightful into a way the way that someone thinks, also how they will communicate 
internally. Um, I think a CV is certainly, um, you know, I look at so many CVs every day, you know, as a legal or compliance officer, they pretty much read the same along the way. I mean, everyone's, you know, implementing um, compliance programs, everybody's training. Every, so, how do I, how, and, you know, these kind of things, sorry, you know, are, are continually, you know, the same, I think, in, in most people, you may have, you know, extra jurisdictions and things like that. But, what do I know about how you actually implemented those? You know, what are the issues that you had to overcome? So I've actually been quite surprised that, you know, a number of times the CV looks excellent, uh, but the questionnaire, uh, it's like a different person has written it because they haven't been able to really convey what they are trying to say. They have totally misunderstood the question. <laughs> so it does lead me to believe, you know, is the CV used, used from a template? Um, you know, which is quite easy. I mean, as I said, they're all kind of the same anyway. Um, you could just pull it from the job description um, mm -hmm. when you open it. So in that way, it's a good way for us to vet the communication, but also a good way for our clients to also um, um see how they will communicate internally, you know, through a memo. And particularly, obviously, everything is through email these days. Mm -hmm. So someone can't just be able to talk over the phone. They need to be able to, you know, write an email that mm -hmm. um, makes sense across multiple different countries as well. If it's too... Um, uh, too wordy, it's not succinct, or if it's um, using too much, you know, complex compliance language, it's just not going to work. Perfect. That makes sense. Thanks for that, Olivia. What is your top tip of an easy to implement action that will immediately increase a candidate's markability? Um, well, I think well, an easy one is to obviously make sure your professional social media is up to date and relevant. Um, so that's LinkedIn. Um, I think that's an easy way. Um, a lot, there's a lot of companies that are now using their internal recruiting function. And one of the first things that they will look at, um, is LinkedIn. Um, and don't make it too wordy. Um, most people aren't reading the LinkedIn profiles word for word. Usually they're just mm -hmm. scanning for keywords, right? So make sure you're using the relevant keywords as well. Um, also, I guess on that note, you make sure that your personal social media is, you know, on private, um, meaning that, mm -hmm. yeah, I think more people these days are always, you know, looking up, Googling, you know, potential candidates. Oh, I wonder what, you know, what they do. And I think, you know, there can obviously be some bias or people make assumptions based on personal pictures from the weekend or holidays or, you know, anything that um, may not um, fully convey um, yourself as a professional. So I think those two are really, I guess, easy, quick things to implement, right? You could do that, you know, probably in like 10 minutes. Um, I guess something that's, you know, more more time consuming um, to increase your marketability is just to inc increase, you know, the skills um, that you have. So, mm -hmm. you know, ha have a look at the skills that you need to improve um, or if you don't have them, you know, ask for it internally, you know, through to your boss, through, you know, performance reviews um, or at a suitable time. If you have an, op have an open, um, you know, relationship with your boss and that makes it a little bit easier. I guess sometimes you, it's a bit hard to know, you know, what skills are the ones you need. So, you know, look through, 
um, job descriptions, you know, online and look for jobs that you like, um, that you think, oh, actually, this is a kind of role I'd like to have and look at the skills that you don't have, right? So, and be realistic as well. I think, yeah, I can do that, but really, could you do it, um, you know, very, very well or could you just do it um, from a surface? perspective um so that takes obviously a little bit more time and self-reflection and then obviously being able to seek um those things internally through work and sometimes that's not always possible but at least you're aware of that wonderful and I think that's a good food for thought for me um I am one of the wordy people on LinkedIn so <laughs> I may need to revisit uh after this conversation and see what I can cull. The motherhood penalty was brought to my attention recently by my cousin, Whitney Cheer, who is an awesome advocate for the advancement of women and supports the Gwick podcast as a dude in tech and finance, which is very cool. Shout out to you, Whitney. The motherhood penalty was coined to describe the unattractive situations of working mothers encountering systemic disadvantages in compensation, perceived incompetence and benefits relative to childless women. Now, as a childless woman myself, I'm quite shocked by this, if nothing more than the fact that I view working mothers as holistically some of the most capable people in society because of the variety of roles that they juggle, let alone the ridiculousness of how prejudiced this is. Um, Olivia, I know this will be a topic close to your heart as a new mum yourself. What's your advice for um, working mums in compliance, particularly those who are looking to return to the workforce after some time dedicated to raising children, um, that can best help them avoid getting screwed over by unscrupulous hiring managers? Yeah, I think this is always, you know, a tricky one and it's always, um, you know, a, an interesting topic, um, you know, for debate. So, you know, I think certainly if we, if you are taking time off and, yeah, it's obviously very important to spend time with your kids and, you know, make sure that they get through each day um, and that you get yourself through each day. Um, but I think, you know, in reality, you also have to, if you do intend to go to work, you have to keep in touch with the market and what's happening. You know, I think that anybody, male or female, if they do take time off and then come back in, you can't expect, no matter if it was, for, you know, maternity leave um, or for, you know, a sabbatical, you can't expect to come back after two or three years or wherever it may be and have, you know, the same um, role because, you know, unfortunately you have been out of it. So, you, there was also a starting point again. So, I think to combat that, you know, is to just, you know, where possible, keep yourself, you know, up to date with what's happening in the market, you know, keep up to date with new regulations and laws. When you are able to get a little bit more time outside the house, um, you know, attend compliance events, have your face, you know, still in the market. So people still know, yeah, you're still there, still relevant, you're still relevant, sorry, um, if you can, um, when the kids are in daycare or if it is possible, try and, you know, study um, part-time or, you know, also catch up with your compliance network for, you know, coffee now and again. Just really keep abreast of what is happening. Um, you could also perhaps volunteer in something related to compliance, um, depending on what is happening in your city, which could also keep you um, involved as well. Um, so I think that there are, there are a few things. I know it's not always easy because you want to juggle, but um, you have, you know, obviously children to look after as well. But, you know, I think, you know, even, 
being able to do one or two of those things, you know, catching up with your network or making sure that you are reading, you know, articles online, maybe even set a Google alert um, for new um, anything related to compliance, particularly related to your industry or your state or city um, may be helpful um, as well so you aren't too far from it. Um, I would also say when you are putting your resume together, the usual resume is, you know, chronological in terms of work experience. Mm-hmm. But what you could do is also consider a skills-based resume um, where you tend to list your competencies first, so in terms of all your compliance, relevant compliance experience and what you've achieved over the years, and then after that, um, you know, go more into the you know, actual dates and, and where you've worked before because that will lead the hiring manager or whoever is looking at your CV to look at your skills and what you, you first and then look at, oh, okay, well, there was some time off, but actually... What did I read first? These are the things that this person can bring. So that's something else as well, changing your CV um, to a skills-based one. Um, And if you want some more information about that, you can obviously um, email me. I'm happy to look at that. Or you can, you know, Google online and um, look up skills-based resume and um, see if that's something suitable for you. And, you know, thirdly, I would probably say just stay confident. You know, don't feel bad about taking maternity leave. You know, it's such an important um, thing for yourself, for society as a whole. So when you are interviewing, you you know, convey it as, as a positive thing, you know, as being grateful to have had the opportunity um, to help nurture your kids at a critical time. I don't think you need to go into it too much if you are interviewing as it's not relevant to the role. Um, but, you know, really, you know, just like anything else, you know, when you're talking about why you moved on from other um, other roles in the past, you know, put a positive spin on it. And if you can, as I mentioned before, um, keep yourself up to date with um, compliance issues or compliance regulations, I think that will be really helpful as well because the employer will know that while you've taken time away, you have done everything you can to stay as close to it as possible. That's a great um, list of suggestions there, Olivia. Thank you. Uh, One of the listener questions submitted for you is, what is your advice for differentiating yourself as a leader who has experience building compliance programs from all of the people who have compliance in their title? Um, Yeah, that is a tricky one, Um, especially what I found here in Asia is that, you know, titles can be um, non-reflective of Mm -hmm. what a person has actually done, as you you probably know, Mary. So, Mm -hmm. I would say that in your CV, try and make it as quantitative as possible, which may be a bit difficult, um, but, you know, something that you can show to prove your experience, you know, is there any correlation between the number of incidences that have happened versus the number of training sessions, for example, that you have led? You know, has there been uh, reductions in incidents before you joined the company or before you've implemented a program, you know, till now? And usually you might be able to get that data through some of the employment, uh, sorry, employee surveys. Um, you could talk to HR and depending on how they structure it, ask if you could also add um, a couple of questions in just so you also know how um, your programs are going or, you know, usually most companies will have some metrics to show how a company, how a program or has 
been, you know, if it has been successful or not. So I would, where possible, try and use figures because, as you say, it is hard um, to prove. Otherwise, everybody can say say, yes, I can do this, but, you know, being able to prove it is a little bit harder. So really having those quantitative numbers is really, really helpful. Awesome. Thank you. What are the most common reasons you hear for a candidate not making it to the next round in the application process? And how do you suggest best combating these common issues? Yeah, I think this is a tricky question because it really depends on the particular, um, you know, interview and, you know, obviously each one will be quite different. So usually if you've made it to interview stage, then the interviewer thinks that you have most of the skills that they're looking for, right? So on paper, Mm -hmm. you know, relevant, they're not going to waste time for someone that they think is not going to be, um, have, have some of the skills that they're looking for. So, Usually from a client perspective, what I get is either they don't have enough experience in one particular area um, or, mm-hmm. you know, it's just the wrong style for their company or, you know, there's one role, there's, you know, 20 people and they had to choose it, choose the top five, for example, okay. to move around mm-hmm. to the next next mm-hmm. one. So, you know, it's a little bit of combination um, for, for both. So, you know, in terms of being able to combat these issues, you know, I think it is a little bit difficult because it really depends, you know, which was stronger. Maybe your competition, unfortunately, is just stronger than what you are for this particular role. Um, right. But really, Colin, I think with each interview, like it's your first date, right? Um, for those that have been interviewing quite for quite some time, it can be a bit tedious to go for another one, but you really have to, you know, take each interview, like, as I said, it's your first day, you know, make sure you prepare, make sure you have a good understanding of your own background, but also, you know, have you know, ask questions about the company or about the role that are inquisitive questions and not just questions that you can just find on the internet. Um, so, you know, really try and set yourself apart. Yeah, that sounds great. And will you tell us something um, that candidates would be surprised to hear about in compliance recruitment? Um, well, I'm not sure if this is a surprise, but I would say experience is one thing, but attitude really counts for mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. You've all heard that the term that, oh, you know, I don't want compliance because, you know, they're the policeman or actually I should say policewoman um, for this podcast. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and I think, you know, that's still the stigma sometimes, um, no matter what. So, you, what, what people are, clients are usually looking for is someone that has a compliance background but also is com- is very commercial as well, right? They need to be firm, but they need to have an understanding of the business. As I mentioned before, they really need people with, you know, the typical kind of sales kind of personality, but, you know, obviously, you know, people that can also, you know, stick to the rules, unlike a lot of the sales people, um, mm-hmm. and, but also just people that can relate to as many people as possible. I was, I've, I've, we've had experience in terms of hiring people that had less experience compared to others, but their personality and their ability to communicate really, I think, um, um, you know, decide, um, was the reason the client hired these people. At the end of the day, you can 
build and develop your skills. It's very hard to change personalities though. (laughs) That's a good point. That was really interesting. Thank you. Olivia, what tips do you have for HR professionals to make sure the right skills are screened for? And I ask this question because it can be incredibly frustrating when you essentially see a job that it looks like it's been written for you based on your work history and then you don't get shortlisted for um, even the, 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 the first round. Um, so what, what tips do you have for HR professionals to make sure that they're screening for the right skills up front? I guess for HR, you know, really understand the compliance challenges for the business and then ask how candidates would deal with them, you know, really digging deep into what the actual challenges are. And I know there's not a lot of time because HR are hiring for a range of different functions and compliance roles probably don't come up as often as some of the other roles. So quite often they may not be as technically, um, um, you know, sound in terms of being able to evaluate mm-hmm. um, what a good compliance person is. You know, it's, you know, it could be, quite just looking at the CV and seeing if, you know, words match um, to the job <laughs> description that they're hiring manager. So, um, you know, for HR that do want to really hone in, I would say certainly understand the compliance challenges of your business, talk to some of the other leaders within the company and find out what their issues are and then ask the candidates scenario questions. So share a time when you have and then obviously list a list the, the problem, it doesn't, you don't have to convey or you mm-hmm. could make it much broader so it's not specific to your company and then ask them how they would deal with this type of issue. I think they will then get a better idea. Uh, they don't need to know all the, you know, absolute terms um, or regulations for compliance, but they'll get a good idea about how they will react and can convey this back to hiring managers if they're not quite sure and the hiring manager can say, actually, that yeah, that's a good way to have dealt with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really just communicating between the business and the candidate. And, and I know it can be frustrating for candidates. So I think for candidates also, know your audience, right? If you are interviewing with someone that you feel doesn't really have an idea mm-hmm. about what you actually do, don't go too complex um, into it. This is not the person to impress your technical <laughs> skills with, right? right. Um, that's for, you know, when you meet with the compliance director or someone that really understands what you do, um, mm-hmm. really kind of speak their language and somewhat educate them while not be diddling. You know, in the end, whoever interviews you may be your future peer, So, um, they will also be evaluating you from that perspective. They'll be thinking, okay, is this somebody that I could work with? I really don't know much about compliance, but is this person someone that I would feel comfortable talking about? Can they help me with my issues? Mm -hmm. Um, and things, you know, and, and so on. So, Think about that as not always, you know, people being a um, barrier to where you, but think of it as someone being your potential peer or internal client even as well and how you would then frame your conversations if you did get the job and were working with them. Great. Thank you. And we have another listener question for you and it focuses on a situation where an individual has a few years of compliance experience, but most recently has been working as a director of sales training. Um, how can this individual make the most of a broad background and transferable skills when trying to get back into a compliance role? Um, well, I would 
say to you know really pinpoint the skills that they think are transferable for the role that they are going for and bear in mind that not everything is relevant and not everybody reads every single word of your CV. So as I kind of mentioned before, not too wordy. It should be succinct, but also make sure that it's relevant. I would say a lot of people just read the first few bullet points and really just scan most, most of, most of the rest of the CV to be, to be honest. So, um, you know, make sure that the skills that are transferable for that particular role that this person Mm -hmm. is going for are relevant um, and also, you know, understand, I, I would say, you know, in this case, understanding the nature of the work and challenges that the salespeople face, you know, are, are key. So making sure that, you know, they are able to communicate that um, within their CV or in their cover letter, show examples perhaps where they are able to um, or they have been able to link the two together in terms of sales compliance, in terms of I understand the business because I have walked um, in their shoes. I understand their challenges. I know how to speak their language. Um, I can build relationships easy because I know what their challenges are and what their focus is, right? And so I can Mm -hmm. make um, my new role much easier, much better for them and for the compliance function. I think that's great advice looking at it um, from basically the the end user perspective of compliance Mm -hmm. solutions. And another thing that I would probably um, tack on would be a lot of big companies, um, they're able to specialize in certain areas of compliance. So there are a lot of companies out there that have roles, especially geared at people who are training subject matter experts. So if you keep a lookout for those and hone in on the compliance roles that are focused on training um, and use your transferable skills um, that that you've learned there, that will also help. Mm. Okay, great. Definitely. Olivia, you might not remember this, but um, uh, probably, I'd say, a year or so after we met, um, you asked me, have you got anything a bit more professional looking for a headshot? And I was like, no, I I haven't had any professional shots taken. But I I sort of felt uh, very, shall we say, motivated and encouraged um, after your pointed question to ensure that I got one. Um, What is your advice for headshots on LinkedIn profiles? Is there anything that you would like to warn against that is a common pitfall? Um, And additionally, what is best practice for deciding whether or not to include a headshot in resumes or CVs these days? Okay, I guess for the first question, I would say definitely use a professional photo <laughs> if you're not a, if you're not photogenic and you had you're at a party and you someone took a photo and you look really nice in it because and that's the one that you chose because you don't usually look nice in photos um, still don't use it you know I think that the, there's just an impression that first of all how come you don't have a professional photo mm-hmm. And second of all, like I kind of mentioned before, I think people also make assumptions um, mm-hmm. about the photo as well, which is, you know, obviously not great. So save it for Facebook, save it for Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, but on LinkedIn, certainly is a professional one. If you can, I know there are a lot of, you know, little companies that now just do, you know, studio photos. You don't have to obviously do a big photo shoot, but they will take professional headshots. They cost 10 or $15. You know, it's going to be the 10 best 
invest 10 or $15 you've invested. So Mm -hmm. definitely um, I would say use that. I would say smile in the photo um, and just be yourself. And even I I would say also when you, if you are hesitant to use it, ask your friends or peers and go, what do you think of this photo? Because I think we are all our worst enemy when it comes to um, Mm analyzing photos of ourselves we always think we look bad unless we're doing a certain pose so you know (laughs) ask ask your peers you know do you think this looks good does it make does it make me um you know look like look professional so um that's if you are concerned about um the type of photos that usually take um in regards to oh and actually while we're on linkedin if i can just add Mm -hmm. um when you are commenting on linkedin I would also say try and keep it, um, your comments based on professional um, uh, articles or, you know, right. professional blogs because it's, it's funny the number of times, and it depends if people don't, if have people have connections that aren't actually in the professional sphere that they're in mm. and they could be laughing at some clip that people come on and you can see this person going, ha ha, yeah, that's so funny. Uh, you know, it just doesn't convey the right message sometimes, and that will come up in other people's feeds as well. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've commented, so that's also yep. something um, to consider as well. Mm-hmm. And while it's also obviously a good platform for you to share your opinion, just be careful how you know the opinion that you're sharing may not be. Sh- appreciated by everybody even yeah. for yourself so potential people may go oh actually this is something that I feel strongly about and this person mm-hmm. is making a mockery of it mm-hmm. you may not think about it at the time but right. obviously if you are going to be looking for work or it also just sends uh, I think a particular message so always try I always think just try and be as neutral as possible mm-hmm. if you have those opinions sure that's fine, but do you need to put it all out there where everybody mm-hmm. can, you know, make their own judgment? So that's just something um, to consider mm-hmm. as well. Um, and if you are going to update your LinkedIn profile, especially after I've said maybe not too wordy and things, you can mm-hmm. actually turn off the activity broadcast on your yes. profile. But every yes. time you're making a change, it doesn't say, oh, Mary just updated her CV or Olivia just, <laughs> you know, did this. So mm-hmm. especially if you are doing it to attract, um, you know, potential future employers as well, you don't need to let everybody know because um, people already assume, I think, that you're already looking right. for another job. I think that's right. So um, professional headshot for LinkedIn profile. If you don't have one, uh, go with nothing at all until you can get a professional one. And then what about for resumes and CVs? Yeah, for resumes and CVs, I think it really just depends on the market that you're in, I would say no headshot usually in the CV unless you are in a country where is it ex- where it's expected. Um, I'm not sure outside of Asia, but there are some countries in Asia where it is standard to mm-hmm. put your photo. Um, if you're unsure, then I would just say no, um, mm-hmm. not to put it. You know, the resume um, or you know should be about your skills and experience and education, not what you look like. Right. Um, Unless yep. you're obviously applying for a modelling job, um, well, you know, and I think that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something maybe you could start, Mary. <laughs> um, oh, and in terms, and I think also 
companies are also concerned about, you know, possible discrimination um, just by way of unconscious bias. So I know some some law firms in particular, you know, go one step further where HR will take out the names of candidates mm. as well so that hiring yeah. managers just focus on the skill set and not yeah. whether that person has, you know, an ethnic name or non-ethnic name, mm. whichever it is the bias is coming from. Yeah, or even male, female. Exactly. Right. Is there anything that you've observed our gentleman counterparts doing better when negotiating after receiving a job offer that we women in compliance could learn from? Um, I was. I think I've been. I guess quite lucky that the females that I've placed have always been pretty confident in their ability and not afraid to ask what they want um, and especially I think with in my job you know a lot of it at the end of the process is to negotiate you know with the client so I guess I do um, quite a bit of that um, on their behalf so it hasn't necessarily right. been a face-to-face mm-hmm. um, and from my perspective I think both males and females are quite open as to what they want and will obviously let them know if I think it's actually realistic or not um, and work with the client on that. But I think from a female perspective, what I've seen is, um, especially if they have a family, is they're concerned about bringing up work flexibility, um, right. whether they can work from home. If they have something on, they need to get, you know, get out of work early. You know, what is it? You know, and I think, as you said before, being a working mom is just trying to juggle everything um, at once. So I think that's something that you can either speak to your recruiter about and they can bring it up with the client or if you are interviewing, you know, directly, you know, bring that up with the interview. You don't have to ask in so many ways, but I think certainly keep it to the second interview. You don't want um, to bring that up in the first interview, but probably the second interview would be um, suitable and, you know, asking, instead of asking, you know, what is your work flexibility um, policy, um, you could ask things like, what does a typical day look like? You know, what is the work culture like? Um, you could look on Glassdoor, um, for example, look on their company website as a policy, um, you know, look on LinkedIn and see if there are any connections that you know that used to work mm-hmm. there to kind of just get a sense of it if you don't want to be too direct. Um, and then if you have a pretty good idea, you know, in, through that process, that actually it sounds like they do. And uh, sorry, another tip is to, you know, when you are going there, observe what the company is like if you do get to kind of walk through the offices Mm -hmm. you know does it seem like Mm -hmm. everyone seems to be quite happy is everyone just very focused still not talking to anyone you can get a good sense of the kind of culture when you Mm -hmm. when you are at their offices as well but you know certainly if you get to the end of the process once you have the figures and an offer made to you then I think it would also be fair um you know to to also discuss you know work flexibility um, as well. And I think some, you know, some employers are fantastic about it and they understand um, that, you know, work flexibility is required for a number of different reasons. But for those that don't, you know, be prepared to um, share how you are going to make it work, right? So, you know, I need to have work flexibility on this particular day or I may need it sometimes, but, 
if obviously, you know, I'm going to be available, I plan to make myself, um, um, you know, available to work in the evenings. I will always make projects. I can, you know, just so the person that may have some concerns understands that at the end of the day, the work is still going to get done. It may not be in the office where you can see me, but I will get it done. So I think also a slight bit of education sometimes as to what work flexibility means to you um, and how it could actually even be a positive um, thing for the company. Wonderful. Thank you, Olivia. I wanted to round out uh, today's episode with um, what appears to be a fairly perennial concern um, in the compliance job hunting market for uh, those of us who don't come with legal backgrounds. So to hear a little more about the trends um, in this area, I spoke with Steve Harrison from Concilium and asked him a couple of questions about um, lawyers versus non-lawyers in the compliance market. So when I asked Steve about what we're seeing currently um, when it comes to hiring manager preferences for candidates with legal as opposed to anyone with compliance experience, um, he advised that even at the most senior levels, um, they've been seeing a shift from JD essential or JD preferred or JD or master's preferred um, to uh, even no, no requirement at all for um, a, a law degree to be held. So um, the observation has been that more and more clients are open to interviewing and hiring non-attorneys for their compliance leader roles. Um, and there was a notable search last year that they had, which saw four attorneys and one non-attorney in an interview process for a global compliance leader position. And the non-attorney got the job based on his leadership skills and demonstrable compliance experience. So there is absolutely um, good indicators in the market right now. And I asked Steve additionally what would be his best advice for overcoming any prejudices um, that may still exist. And Steve thought there will always be um, compliance jobs stating that there is a requirement for a JD or a law degree for those of us outside of the US um, and hiring authorities who feel that it's necessary. Um, given the number of opportunities coming up in compliance, um, Steve is always busy. Um, his first piece of advice would be to just accept that this is sometimes the case and uh, navigate around those jobs. If a recruiter is involved, you can ask for their honest opinion on what your chances are. And if you see it on the job description as being essential that you be a lawyer, you might be wasting your time. Um, but for those who are not in chief compliance officer positions themselves and wish to search proactively, seek out non-lawyer chief compliance officers and send them your resume. Um, in fact, in the United States alone, there are more than 7,000 um, of non-attorney compliance leaders and many of them work for large publicly traded companies and they'll almost certainly be hiring multiple people per year. So please um, don't feel downtrodden by it if um, you, you don't have the law degree and you're seeing a few jobs that are requiring it. Um, there are certainly roles out there um, where the, the hiring managers um, and colleagues are um, prioritising and valuing simply a really strong compliance background. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review. 